All right, if you could open to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8, if you're not there already. We're going to uh, today read the text in chunks as we go along, um, so we can uh, both read all of it without reading an extended portion right this second, um, and also so we can make observations from the respective chunks as we as we go. So uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 8 through 7, 38, the, so that's the entirety of chapter 7, is what our aim is today. And a lot of this is rehearsal or expansion of uh, details about the sacrifices that we talked about um, uh, last week. And there's some new information as well as a few um, parenthetical chunks, for lack of a better term, that that are uh, all new information expanding on, on the sacrifices that that uh, <clears throat> we began talking about last week. So this will serve as a good review of those offerings too. And uh, with the end of chapter 7, we'll finish up uh, the sacrifices. Um, so that wasn't too bad, was it? Um, <laughs> we'll finish up all the sacrifices with the exception of the Day of Atonement, which isn't discussed until chapter 16 and kind of serves as the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus, and it happens to be, it happens to be right in the middle where it would uh, draw your attention to the importance of that Day of Atonement. So that's the only other sacrifice um, that we need to get to here in Leviticus. We'll begin with verses 8 through 13. Would someone read that for me? And then just go ahead and offer observations that you observe uh, from those verses. Would someone read verses 8 through 13? Thank you, sir. All right, so what do you notice there in those verses? Don't let the, uh, don't let the fire go out is one of the emphasis there. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the fire just kept on going. Mm-hmm. And um, I assume, I probably could have looked into it and figured it out, but I assume that even when they traveled with the tabernacle, that they kept the fire in their censers and toted it around with them. And so the fire was persistently burning on the altar or kept alive all of the time. 
Um, we find in Scripture that the part of that means that the priests had night shifts, <laughs> and uh, they kept uh, they were working in the in the tabernacle or the temple later around the clock, uh, keeping the fire and the other various things that need to be done going. What other things? Yeah, yeah, there's uh, clothing changes going on there. And again, just uh, that drumbeat of the holiness that God required. Many of these things aren't like major points that you could uh, really make a big to-do about, but it emphasizes just another way in which the holiness is required for the, the sacrificial offerings and for the work that was going on around it. What else? <clears throat> Does anybody remember, either from this passage or from what we talked about last week, the nature of the burnt offering? Because that's what we're talking about here, is talking about a burnt offering. And uh, what is that all about? Yeah, it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, we learned back in chapter 1, I think, when the burnt offering was the first one in the list there, too. Yeah, it was... Right, they put their hands on the offering. It was accepted as an atonement, a substitutionary atonement for them. And the worshiper killed his own animal. He was responsible for the death of the, of the critter that was being sacrificed. Um, it it uh, is also called an ascension offering because the, the visual picture is that this is being completely burned up. This is one of the sacrifices where the whole animal was burned up. And, um, <clears throat> and it ascended, and we, it's visual for us because there goes a column of smoke of this animal being burned. But it's ascending to the Lord and is acceptable to him, and, and it was a pleasing aroma to him as that sacrifice was, was made. It involved whole animals whether bulls or sheep or goats or birds, um, turtle doves or pigeons, if that was all you could afford. And, and it's uh, said to provide atonement. It provided a covering in some sense for their sin until Christ should come. That's interesting because the, just the fact that sacrifices were necessary implied that the law was already, that the, especially the further details about the law, about how you're supposed to go about your lives, that that law was already seen as this thing you're persistently breaking. <laughs> and so the law was never something that you could achieve, but even in the instructions God's giving, he's providing these things to make atonement for their failures, the fact that they'll fall short of the mark um, by not keeping the law. So they would need atonement. It would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which is encouraging because it would actually be acceptable. It wasn't a a vain effort to try to come up with something that maybe sort of will appease the gods, um, but was actually accepted by him and was a pleasing aroma. This, the burnt offering, uh, whether or not <clears throat> uh, the people were coming to present an offering, for example, if I ascend, I might bring 
bring a, a burnt offering to the Lord. But even apart from the people doing offerings, it's something that the priests did as their, their daily routine. They offered daily um, burnt offering before the Lord as part of the, the priestly service, the routine. A certain time of the day, they would burn this offering. And it was burned all night long, this passage tells us. And this passage details how they are supposed to take out the ashes of the burnt offering. So they burn all night long. And the priest would put on his special garments and his special trousers or undergarments. I think, what's, what's the King James word? Uh, breeches? Breeches? He put on his special breeches and, uh, and, and take out the ashes. And um, we, we learned that the priestly garments, like it wasn't just a robe, but they had breeches because they were not supposed to expose their nakedness even to the steps of the altar as they were going up. You know, and we'd go like, oh, that sounds like too much information. But it was revealed to them because that was how seriously and holy they were supposed to take it. Like, you need to wear britches when you go up the steps of the altar so that you're not uh, making it unclean by exposing your nakedness even to the, the steps. The priests needed to do a, uh, in a holy and in a sanctified way. They would uh, uh, remove the ashes, and then they had to change their clothes again after they take off the ashes off of the altar, and they would haul them out to this clean place outside the camp. So some portion outside the, the, where the tribes were camping was apparently set aside as a clean place for the ashes to go. And this clean place was also where, um, for the sin offering, where only certain parts of the fatty parts of the animal were burned on the altar. And if it was a priest offering a sacrifice, then the rest of the animal wouldn't be eaten. It would be taken outside of the camp to this same clean place where the ashes were taken. We learned this back in chapter 4, verse 12. They would take the rest of the bull out there, and they would burn that up on a fire of wood in this clean place outside the camp. And it was the ash heap where they would also take these ashes of the burnt offering. It was to be kept going, burning all the time, all around the clock. As I mentioned, the priests had night shifts to keep the fire going. I was kind of interested in, in the, why it was necessary for them to have a perpetual fire going. And uh, my first thought was that perhaps it was because they were keeping alive a fire that had fallen from heaven, from God. And so they weren't just keeping the fire they started with their flint and steel alive. Like they, had, they were keeping this fire that had fallen from heaven alive. And I looked into it a little bit and it turns out just a couple chapters later, where we do have that fire falling from heaven and consuming the sacrifice, they were actually offering sacrifices before that happened, burnt sacrifices. So I thought, well, that hunch didn't pan out. And, <laughs> and, I, and I don't really know why there's this emphasis on the perpetual uh, fire, except they were supposed to tend it, take care of it, um, never stop, basically, uh, uh, managing the, the fire that, that burned up the sacrifices to the Lord. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know why, Mike, why they had to do that, but... Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As, as you're talking, I, I remember in the Proverbs, fire is described as one of the things that's never satisfied. 
So, so maybe that had something to do with it. It was just always there. Yeah, perhaps that's what it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's even said to be that, to be a consuming fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. No, those are good thoughts, guys. I'm glad you could uh, contribute those. Uh, in Israel today, they don't, because they don't have a tabernacle or a temple. Yeah. So they very self-consciously, you can ask a Jew about it, like, what do you do since you don't have the altar? And they will tell you, we do these specific good works to make up for it. Since, and I don't remember the list, but they self-consciously have a substitute that they've contrived. You know, it's not a biblical one at all. It's not even as though they're... Modern Jews, it's not as though they're faithful to the Old Testament. They've, <laughs> they've contrived uh, their own righteousness to substitute for the fact they don't have these sacrifices. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Not that sacrifices would be less sad, <laughs> but I think it had, it's kind of shocking that they made up something to fill the gap. For the uh, for the consecration, yeah. Yeah, they they want it. Yeah, they 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 want to be able to reinstitute the sacrifices, but they can't. There's a mosque there right now, so <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> No, no joke. <laughs> Let's read 14 through 18. Would someone read that one? 14 through 18, the next offering here. Uh, what do you recall about the grain offering? What's the nature of that sacrifice? Well, 
uh, peace offerings coming up, but grain was different. What's that? Uh, it was uh, um, <clears throat> a gift. Yeah, it's considered a, a gift offering. It wasn't so much about blood atonement, obviously, since it's, it's grain, but it was a gift to the Lord. Um, they, would, they would burn um, only a portion of it, the memorial portion of it, or a handful of it. And the unburned portions were eaten by the priests. Um, <clears throat> verse 29 tells us that, that any priest could eat of it. Um, any male among the priests could eat of the leftovers of the grain offering. Um, it, it would also include a subcategory of the first fruits offerings. Um, so you might bring your first fruits as a grain offering, or you might bring another grain offering, and a portion of it be burned, and a portion of it go to supply for the priests. And the priests would eat it in the courtyard of the tabernacle, which is interesting in and of itself. Like, I wonder if they had picnic tables. Like, how, <laughs> how did this work? Because <clears throat> there, were a, there were a lot of priests in there, and uh, they a, a portion of their salary, if you will, or of their provision was coming from these grain offerings that were given to them and some other offerings as well that they were allowed to eat. Um, but they would, they would eat it there in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And there's this repeated emphasis, again, on holiness. Anyone touching <clears throat> the, the grain offering had to be holy. Um, I'm on uh, the wrong page here. What happened? Oh, my page is printed on the back. There we go. <clears throat> All right, it had to be uh, unleavened. It wasn't consumed or eaten just willy-nilly, like, here, pack it home and put it in your fridge. It was eaten... Uh, in the court of the, of the tabernacle as a, a sanctified uh, gift to the Lord, and they were provided for there. Uh, whoever touches uh, the offering, it says, <clears throat> shall become holy there at the end of verse 18. And I will tell you that that's a strange expression, whoever touches them shall become holy. Maybe some of you have some thoughts about that. And it's strange because in various other places, typically, the person touching a sanctified thing has to be holy before they touch it. And it's typical that uncleanness makes a thing unclean. So uncleanness is transferable, but it's not typical that holiness would be transferable. Like something unclean bumps into something and makes it unclean, but it would be unusual for something that's holy to bump into something and make that other thing holy. Usually the contamination is the thing that's transferable. And... Um, one example of that, and let's flip over there, is Haggai chapter 2. <clears throat> Haggai is third to the last Old Testament book, so. Short little book. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 12, you have an example of how it's typical that uncleanness is transferable, but not cleanness. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? So if you have this holy thing and you bump this other thing, does the other thing become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. 
and so with every work of their hands, that what they offer there is unclean. So cleanness um, was not transferable, and uncleanness was. And this passage says, whoever, uh, back in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 18, whoever touches that, the grain offering shall become holy. And perhaps this is an exception um, where they were consecrated by contact with holy things. Um, or perhaps it's just the grammar sounds weird, but it's referencing the fact that they should become holy beforehand, before they enter into the tabernacle and have any kind of, of contact with holy things. And I, if you have thoughts on that, I'm open to them. Art? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Perhaps that's it. Uh, no, I don't. I don't believe so. Um, no. Th- th- well, uh, this is something that the people are bringing. It's not the specific formula of the showbread. It's not sitting there on the showbread table, but it's just partly burned up, partly eaten by the, partly the lunch for the priests. King James says fine flour. Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine, uh, I don't know if you're like a kid, you say, let me get a big pinch of that there, you know? Uh-huh. You don't eat flour. Uh-huh. Um, it was uh, uh, mixed with oil and frankincense, and back in, earlier in the book, we talked about it last week, it was offered with salt, and so it seems to be uh, cooked into unleavened cakes that were not just plain old flour. Yeah, it's some kind of bread. Or at least like a dough. <laughs> uh, it's not supposed to be baked with leaven, so it was baked with baked unleavened. Um, it was a thing um, uh, most holy, so this is again something uh, consecrated to the Lord for his use. Even though the priests are the ones eating it, it's to the Lord, and it's similar to how we think about tithes and offerings nowadays, like just because the money ends up going to the missionary doesn't mean it's not to the Lord, right? It's dedicated for his use and ends up that a person is using it, but it's the Lord's, right? So, so it, uh, um, I'm, yeah, the, this one was just the, the males that they ate in the courtyard. And so apparently his wife and children did not eat of this. Um, uh, they were provided for other ways, apparently. You know, the, the requirements when the man was uh, initiated into the priesthood, you, you probably covered that. I wouldn't hear, I, I assume. You, uh, the, the, right ear, no, mm-hmm. the right ear, right mm-hmm. thumb, and big toe. Yeah, the consecration for... Right. You, it's not just the descendant of Levi, but, but actually set apart as a priest before you could do it. And yeah, the consecration of the priest will come a little bit later in the book. No, all we've covered is offerings. This is just week two of offerings, of sacrifices and offerings. So uh, from 19 through 23, I'll read this part. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. Well, there you go. They were, 
they were they're cooking in there. You shall uh, bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering, and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons, who is anointed to secede him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So here you have a subcategory of the grain offering, except this is when a priest offers it himself. And, and this is a, a grain offering that differed um, in that the worshiper is the priest, and it's, it's like the daily burnt offering that the priests would offer. This is a grain offering that was uh, repeated daily, part of it in the morning, uh, part of it in the evening, half and half. And so it was part of the, the routine offerings that would have just been go- ongoing. And it was offered uh, not just by any old priest, but by the high priest or the, the successor to the high priest that would be Aaron. So Aaron's son, who's anointed as high priest, would be responsible for this particular daily grain offering. And uh, uh, in this case, the entire grain offering was burned up. None of it was left for the priests to eat. Um, and uh, we haven't talked about it too much, but, but Moses and Aaron, his brother, were from the tribe of Levi. You get that in the very first verses of the book of Exodus. And Moses was chosen to be the civic out front leader, and Aaron was the one who was chosen to be the high priest in the, in the work of the tabernacle. And the tribe of Levi was the ones who were responsible for the priesthood and all the work uh, that went into it for carrying the tabernacle and all that is broken up by various uh, family units, different responsibilities. But Aaron was the high priest and his sons, uh, he would have a successor who was the high priest from among his sons. Um, And so that high priest would be the one who was responsible for the grain offering. Incidentally, that's where we get the name of the book Leviticus as it's dealing with laws pertaining to the Levitical or the tribe of Levi priesthood. So here this grain offering was was totally burned up. I think somebody made a move like they were going to make a comment and Right, that's one of the weaknesses of the Levitical system that Hebrews tells us is, hey, the priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. You all need a better priest <laughs> who doesn't have to do that for his own sins and then the sins of the people. And so that points to Christ who didn't need these kind of offerings for himself because he was, was already blameless. Uh, one interesting thing, too, about the priesthood is uh, the firstborn was always supposed to be dedicated to the Lord from among the whole nation of Israel. The firstborn is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. And the Levitical priesthood became a substitute for the entire nation. So instead of the firstborn from every family getting pulled away to serve the Lord, you had the tribe who was a substitute for the, whole, for the firstborn of the whole people, and they were the ones who performed the service uh, to the Lord. So this whole thing has substitution uh, written into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
If there weren't enough Levites, as I recall, there could be a redemption price paid for it. So, yeah, their census even had to do with how many Levites there were to substitute for the firstborn from among the tribes. It was all, it's all very detailed and, and, and orderly, too. Like, it's, it's explained pretty thoroughly. We're moving on to the sin offering, verses 24 through 30. Would someone read that for me? <clears throat> All right, so here we are uh, with a, a rehearsal of the sin offerings that we've already talked before. Uh, the sin offering is, <clears throat> is detailed uh, earlier in the book um, for unintentional sins, and then the sinner becomes aware that he's committed such a sin, and so he has to offer a sin offering. Depending on the status of the person, whether he was a priest, whether it was a sin offering on behalf of the whole people, whether it was a leader or whether it was a common person, they had different offerings that they were supposed to bring. Um, it involved confessing the sinfulness of what they had done, even though that they weren't aware of it at the time. And the fatty parts of the sin offering were burned uh, on the altar, and the rest of it was eaten by the priest. So it details the, the parts of fatty lobes of livers and kidneys and things like that that were supposed to be trimmed off and burned uh, to the Lord. And here the priests get um, meat to eat instead of just grain offerings. So they ate a lot of beef, I guess. Um, any, any male of the priests could eat the unborn portions of these sacrifices, and it was eaten in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And again, this drumbeat of holiness. Anyone touching such a sacrifice had to be holy. Any blood that got on their garments had to be washed out. Um, any vessel, if it was clay and you were using it for cooking these sacrifices, then it had to be uh, broken and destroyed. If it was bronze, it had to be washed and cleansed to be uh, prepared for worship again. And here again, um, for sacrifices that were offered by the priest, it was different. Like verse number 30, it describes a sin offering where blood is brought into the tent of meeting. And we read earlier that, that when the sin offering was either on behalf of the whole congregation or it was on behalf of the priest, then they would actually take blood into the holy place and put it on the horns of the altar of incense um, uh, and, then, and then burn the fat parts. If it was a leader from among the people or if it was a common person, the blood was just applied to the horns of the altar outside the tabernacle. If it was a sacrifice that the blood had gone into the holy place, they weren't supposed to eat it. They were supposed to burn up the whole critter and, and all of it was to be consumed. But the ones that were by the leaders and the common people went to the priests to be eaten by them again to take care of their needs, provide uh, for them. We're going to keep on going uh, for sake of time. This seems like 
Mm-hmm. The sin offering was for the old, old like, because they're all sinners. Mm-hmm. But the trespass offering was for some particular <coughs> violation of God's law. Mm-hmm. Then that's what we get to next is the guilt offering. The guilt offering uh, was was sins that required restitution to the person who had been offended. You had somehow stolen or done someone else wrong, and you had to offer a sacrifice and provide restitution plus a fifth uh, to make right the the wrong. Uh, verses one through seven, or sorry, one through ten of chapter seven tells us that the, the laws for the guilt offering were the same as for the sin offering, where the priest got to eat the rest of the animal, um, and the priest kept the skin, and just the fatty parts were burned up to the Lord. And then 11 through 36, we have the peace offering again. The peace, the peace offering is an offering of fellowship. It was an offering where the, the people would actually get to partake in eating the rest of the sacrifice themselves. And so they would have a, a, a feast, again, in the courtyard of the, of the tabernacle, which just strikes me again, like there was a lot of eating. <laughs> sacrifices and eating of the sacrifices in the court of the tabernacle. And uh, it could be a food offering, uh, of animals and, and with cakes, only the fatty parts were burned and the rest was eaten by the worshipers themselves in this communal fellowship meal inside the courtyard of the tabernacle. And, there, and this tells us here in chapter 10, I'm not going to read it, but just to summarize, that there were actually multiple varieties of peace or fellowship offerings. Some of them were thanksgiving offerings and some of them were vow offerings. So if you had made a vow to the Lord, you would sort of seal it with a, an offering, uh, with a peace offering inside the, the tabernacle and, and, and eat of it. Um, if leavened cakes were offered, then one was given to the priests and the rest were eaten by the worshipers. So there's, there were separate rules for leavened or unleavened things. If it was a thanksgiving offering, they were supposed to eat it that very day in the courtyard. If it was a vow offering, they could eat it over the course of two days but not the third day. And verse 18 tells us that, uh, 7.18, if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. So it was a, a violation, it was a sin, even to eat the sacrifice on the third day instead of just on the first two days. They had to do it exactly the way that God had told them to do it. There was also a way for part of the animal to be given to the priests, and it was offered as a wave offering or a heave offering. And uh, literally, they waved the, a, a chunk of animal, and uh, perhaps it was symbolic that it was going to the Lord, but the priest was actually receiving it to use for himself. Again, it is, it's set apart for God, but, but the priest was the one who actually ate of it, and it was a, a wave offering. So th- this is also like... You, you wish you had video of what was going on. I mean, there's all these sacrifices, animals dying, b- being cut up, various things going this way and various things going this way. And some people are having lunch over here and the priests are having lunch over here. And here's a whole family eating their peace offering over here. And here's a guy like waving chunks of meat in the air. Like it's all very uh, visual. It was the central part of their uh, Worshiping life, you have to assume there would have been a lot of people with a, a nation of upwards of, of two million people with these various sacrifices 
It was a busy place, and, and uh, amazingly, God is there. He's right there in their presence, uh, particularly in that uh, cloud in the Holy of Holies. But here they are able to approach to him and do these things despite their sinful selves. And even to do things that weren't, uh, woe is me, I'm a sinner, but actually happy celebratory things. Like here, we're going in there and we're going to offer some to the Lord, but then we're going to have a feast right there in the, in the courtyard of the tabernacle. You mean like, like uh, idle hands, devil's workshop, that, that whole principle? I don't know. It would have been a vibrant place to, to be a fly on the wall and see what was going on in this, with this tabernacle. I don't think it was just a few hooded guys walking around going, oh, and like taking it super seriously. I mean, it was serious in that they're approaching God. It was very serious. I used the wrong word there. It was very serious, but there's a lot of like different aspects of, of worship going on, and some of them are happy, and some of them are more solemn. Uh, there's a lot of death, but then there's also feasting. So it's, it's very interesting. You can see, see how, how easily and probably pretty quickly it just becomes ceremonial, just going through the motions of <coughs> being signified the, the symbolism mm-hmm. that it symbolizes. Yeah. Whether you worship the symbols rather than what it represents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even throughout the Old Testament, like what we just read in, in, what was it, Haggai? They were doing it the wrong way. And we read last week a section in Malachi where they were doing it the wrong way, where God's just like, stop, don't even do it. Like, better for you to not do it than to run around and be trivial about it. Well, they're doing it the right way. Um, they, in, the one in Malachi, they were offering unclean animals, blemished things. So, yeah. There were times that they were doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Without your the inner man, <laughs> yeah. See, mm-hmm. I, I like the symbol. I mean, your Lord, this is the heave offering. They kind of mm-hmm. heave. Maybe it was heavy the other. Oof! Yeah, yeah it was a, but, a but, hind quarter of a critter. You know, this this is mine, but I'm I'm offering it to you. Uh huh. Although God did, God doesn't need our offering. Right, he doesn't need food. Um, uh, one of the applications that comes from this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Flip over there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 13 and 14. Paul is describing how he uh, was a tent maker in his ministry so he didn't have to rely on anyone else. Uh, uh, Second half of verse number 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So that sounds very familiar to us, right? So in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it provides sort of the... the um, the argument, the basis by which 
people who uh, minister to the Lord should expect that they can um, make a living in serving the Lord. And that's not a, a selfish or a self-centered thing. It's simply being provided for by the work of the ministry. And these priests were. Um, it's also notable, and I've already kind of alluded to it, that the priests on a regular basis, like in their various uh, 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 shifts as they were working in the temple, um, they would have been regularly partaking and eating of these fellowship offerings and of the other offerings where they were allowed to eat of it. They're regularly uh, eating there in the courtyard, and the people on the occasions of these fellowship offerings are having their, their feasts as they eat the animal um, or, the, or the cakes there in the courtyard, uh, right there in the presence of the Lord. And it takes us back to um, the, uh, the, the, the richness of, of eating food and of eating it together with other people or in the presence of God. It's almost a picture of God's own hospitality. Like, you can eat in my courtyard. <laughs> you know, and, and, and when we welcome other people into our homes, there's, like a, there's a givingness in doing that, right? Someone, you can come eat around my table. And there's provision there, taking care of and loving someone, and also fellowship, where you interact and you, you talk to other people. And, and that's true whether you're having your, your family meals together or if you've brought other people into it, that something about eating around the table is meaningful, right? It's fellowship. And here God has his people eating right there in, in the courtyard of the, of the tabernacle, right there in his presence. They had access to uh, eat these, these meals together. Um, it, it must have been a privilege to do so. Um, In chapter 7, verse 22, let's read a few verses here, 22 and onward. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by beasts. may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal, of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood. Whatever, whether of fowl or animals in any of your dwelling places, whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So the fat of those animals that had died by themselves or killed by animals, they weren't supposed to eat that fat. Um, they could use the fat for things besides food. You know, you can make a candle out of it or whatever you might, might do with fat. But they weren't supposed to eat it. And also fat that was used in sacrifices was not to be eaten. It was dedicated to the Lord. Even if the rest of the animal was eaten, they weren't supposed to eat uh, the fat. Uh, the, the Bible does tell us that um, fat of everyday animals as you were going about your life, you, you could eat. Fat wasn't strictly uh, forbidden. And the Psalms describes our souls being satisfied with fat and rich food. And so fat is a, is a, a luxury. It's a, a rich provision. And they could eat fat, just not the fat of the animals that were offered as a sacrifice. But in contrast, blood was completely forbidden. They weren't supposed to eat any blood, regardless of whether it was a sacrificial animal or of another animal. They just uh, were at no time supposed to eat any blood because the life of the flesh was in the blood and because it was so symbolic of the, the s- sacrifice for sin that was necessary going on here in the, in the temple. I want, or tabernacle, and then later on the temple. I want to read um, a commentary here on uh, summing up a few of these things. It's extended, but I think it's, it's clear enough, even if it's longer. Um, and so I'm just going to read it. And this comes from the New Bible Commentary. 
<clears throat> it says uh, here at the end of, of chapter 7, we get to the end of the sacrificial part of Leviticus, like I said, except for Day of Atonement in chapter 16. But here's what this commentary has to say. Having come to the end of the manual on sacrifices for worshipers and priests, it may seem terribly complicated and ritualistic. However, that would be a false impression, probably owing mainly to the strangeness of the whole thing to us. In fact, in comparison with the known sacrificial rituals of other ancient cultures, the Israelite system was relatively simple and straightforward. The laws we have studied were concerned to preserve some dignity and meaningful symbolism in what could have easily have degenerated into noisy chaos by giving both laity and priests clear and simple rules about what to do. The need for decency and order applies to Christian worshiper, worship uh, also. I think that's a valid point because we read it and go, whoa, this is a lot of sacrifices. But if you step back, it's just like these five different types of sacrifices that he kind of goes over twice over the course of seven chapters. And if you're a priest, you do it this way. And if you're a regular person, you do it this way. And it's actually pretty straightforward. Like you could do it without messing it up that bad. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so it was, it was orderly and, and revealed by God to be uh, pretty straightforward. Um, the distinctiveness of Israel's sacrificial system can also be noticed negatively. There was no place for, he uses this word, auguary, augury, and then he defines it, thankfully. <laughs> that is, there's no place for an attempt to derive omens, good or bad, from the entrails of sacrificial animals. God provided better ways to know his will, and in particular that would be through God's word and the office of the prophet, that he would provide for them. Uh, this reference points to the... Uh, there's no place for human sacrifice or even self-mutilation and the use of human blood. Sexual and fertility rituals are entirely absent, as are sacrifices for the dead or any other occult manipulation. The single gift that sacrifices gained from God was the declaration of forgiveness. There was no sense that other favors could be won or bribed out of the deity. Sacrifices for other reasons were brought in response to God's blessing or protection, not in order to buy it. There was no grading of sacrifices in terms of quantity in favor of the wealthy or the powerful. In contrast, provision was made for the poorest, who received just as much forgiveness as any other sinner. Indeed, Israel's system was unique in having no special sacrifices reserved for royalty. Like so much else in Israel, it was geared to the needs of ordinary people. And it has been pointed out by socioeconomic studies that Israel's sacrificial ritual would not have made an excessive demand on the resources of average families. They were expected to give the best when they did bring sacrifices, but they were not expected to impoverish themselves under a heavy religious burden or to enrich a powerful religious elite. I thought those observations were interesting, that so many other ritual systems would be to try to beg the deity for something. Let's, let's offer these things to try to get him to favor us with better crops or whatever. We want the weather to be better this year. Let's try to manipulate whatever we can. And that, there's nothing like that in, in God's system. There's no trying to divine the future in God's system. Um, I appreciate that he brought out, like, the only thing they received from God was you're forgiven. <laughs> and, and when they brought gifts to God, it was because God had blessed them. 
And they had first fruits to offer, or they had things to be thankful for, or they'd made a vow and they were committing to follow through to the Lord. It was all, it was all, uh, uh, it, it wasn't man trying to claw his way up to God. It was just simple acceptance of the forgiveness he would provide and simple thanksgiving for the blessings that he had, uh, that he had given. And he brought out too that it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, you got the same forgiveness. If you brought a bull because you were rich, that's acceptable atonement, pleasing aroma to the Lord. You bring a couple pigeons, acceptable atonement, pleasing aroma to the Lord, and it was all, it was all taken care of. And so they, they were equipped to walk in God's ways um, with a system that was good. It ended up being flawed only because of the sinfulness of the people. That's the way that Hebrews describes it. Is the, the reason why they needed something better isn't because this wasn't a righteous and good law. It was because they were sinners <laughs> who could not attain righteousness through it. Yeah, yeah. So the whole system was, was really good. Um, and uh, I, I love a portion near the end of Deuteronomy that just describes it as, what other people has such a God who would dwell with you? What other people has such a good law that you could walk in his ways? And, and it was at the time. It was the pinnacle of God's revelation to his people. And it's only eclipsed because Jesus is literally inside of us now. Like <laughs> that's, that's the only way it could be uh, better. Or, or because atonement has actually fully been made instead of just anticipated. Uh, in its place, it was good. And it was, again, flawed only because they were sinners trying to go through it. So. Any other thoughts as we close this morning? I think uh, regular reading of Leviticus will impress a lot of it on you just by default. That you'll be struck with the holiness of God and of what he required and the fact that his people were so needy of him to give them this revelation and uh, that they couldn't just approach God in whatever trivial way. Um, the scripture by itself will, will impress you with those things as you read, as you read it. All right, let's, let's close and we'll, we'll be done. God, we do thank you. Um, we are glad we're not under this. We're glad we don't have to bring a sheep on Sunday morning or whenever, but, uh, but we're thankful for that because it was all fulfilled in Jesus and we look to a, a better sacrifice once for all to pay for our sins. But uh, thank you for how you revealed yourself in this way as a God to be taken seriously, as a God worthy of receiving uh, gifts, a God worthy of receiving sacrifices, a, a God worthy of a whole tribe being set apart to uh, work for you, a, a God so holy as to require these things to be done in a, exactly the way you are required. And so uh, may we as New Testament saints pick up on those things, get a better picture of who you are as we desire to live our, our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen.